My name is Janice B. Gordon, and this is Scale Yourselves podcast. Welcome to Scale Yourselves podcast, listed number nine of 43 best podcasts for every sales professional. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert and recommended by LinkedIn Sales as one of 15 innovating sales influencers to follow. In this episode of Scale Your Sales podcast, I talk to a serial founder and entrepreneur. He actually used his experience of uh, getting investment to create his platform connected. You're going to hear all about um, his story and what are the real benefits of being part of his ecosystem and community. But also we talk about neurodiversity and also the what the workforce should look like in the future and how we can attract Gen Z into the workforce and create more flexibility, but also power up productivity as well. My next guest is a serial entrepreneur, investor, founder, and CEO of Connected. Welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, Roy Samuel. Janice, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, great. And thank you so much for uh, having me on your podcast. It really got a fantastic response. And when I listened to it, I listened to it twice, you know, because it, it was that good. You're, you're such a great host. So I hope I can live up to your, your standards, Roy. Uh, thank you so much for saying. Yeah, absolutely. We got so much positive feedback. It was so great hearing your, your view on things. And just amazing to see how many people resonate with your progressive view on on the way to structure sales and the mentality that goes into it. And I think a lot of people were relieved to hear it as well, because, you know, there is so much of that old school mentality that people are fed up of. And uh, great to see sales leaders such as yourself really shining the light for, for the new way. Well, I'm glad, you know, this is the big energy podcast. So guys, please go and, and, and listen to this episode. And literally, I'm hooked on on all of them. I've, I've listened to to so many. Um, it's it's really great. And, you know, I, I've been campaigning for a long time for us to get rid of the kind of macho culture. We're just people just like any other industry and why it should be treated differently. Um, and in such a disrespectful way that we talked about on, on, on the podcast. So, so, you know, let's continue the discussion here. <laughs> so, Roy, I'm you're um, a serial entrepreneur, founder. You even set up an organization to, to help other founders as well. So give us a bit of background about your your founding journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks so much for that. So I've been messing around with startups since I was 14, uh, not calling them startups, just trying to launch various projects, running music nights for friends, getting involved with various different things, basically anything to take my mind off focusing on school. Um, and, you know, just always sort of had a bit of entrepreneurial spirit. And then started my first tech company in 2012, which was essentially a content creation toolkit. So helping people create podcasts, videos, other types of content, giving them tools to share that content through social media platforms and a community to share everything with as well, which is really, really standard now. But actually back in 2012, 2013, it was quite bleeding edge technology. 
we got really, really fortunate with that business because we applied it to the worlds of sports and gaming. And it was just when sports journalism was having a big uh, renaissance on Twitter. And just after a really big gaming platform called Twitch had launched, which was eventually acquired by Amazon and still massive, massive gaming platform. So lots of people were using our tools to create content for those platforms. So we got very, very fortunate with that, scaled it to just shy of 9 million monthly active users, and then sold that company to a gaming company called Gfinity in 2018. Off the back of that, I started investing in startups and advising startups as well. And what I found, um, you know, my experience as a first-time founder was, you know, if you're not in network, it can be a totally confusing uh, way to try and build a business. Uh, you know, understanding investor relations is not something which comes natural to most people because it's not a natural skill if you've not spent 10 years in financial services and everything else. So you're muddling around a little bit. And I was very, very fortunate the first time around to have really, really understanding, very, very supportive angel investors who are really helped me get through that journey. And then I saw the massive benefits of that because when it came to selling the company or, or raising funding, we had a really aligned group of, of shareholders. When I started investing in other founders, I realized this is you know quite a common problem for people who haven't come from VC, finance world, et cetera. So we became really, really passionate about building tools that would help businesses and help founders understand and and really manage in a very, very frictionless way the way that they're building their relationships with their investors, with their advisors. Because you might be a brilliant marketeer, you might be brilliant in sales, technology, but this whole piece, the dark arts of uh, speaking with investors, finding investors, not natural to many people. So we became very passionate about trying to really uh, level the playing field there by giving everyone in the ecosystem the tools to understand how to manage and discover these investors. Right. So you say that it say it saves a, an average of six at uh, six and a half hours in reporting. So what, mm. what does that mean? Yeah. So when you're looking at investor reporting, there's two sides to it. There's the, the the quantitative side, which is how much did we grow this month? How much did we spend? What you know, uh, what, what are unit economics? What's our cost of acquisition, etc. And then you have the qualitative uh, element to that. So what's the narrative? Why did these things happen? And then there's the administrative element of who did I send it to? Who's seen what? Is everyone in the loop? So the way that the connected platform works is... Businesses are able to integrate their open banking system, their accounting software, and their payment solution. So their HSBC bank account, their QuickBooks accounting software, and their Stripe or PayPal payment solution. We ingest all of that data and we auto calculate and populate their reporting environment. So all the metrics a business doesn't even know it should be reporting on, let alone how to calculate them, we do that on their behalf so that they're able to just save time on, on figuring out where they are as a business, etc. They're then able to store all this information in a dashboard, which they can invite all their investors to have access to. And they can share different levels of information with different types of, of investors. They might share everything with their lead VC and their board of directors. They might share slightly less information with minority shareholders, depending on what they've agreed with them. But now they never need to worry again about who's seen what, who's got access. It's all there in one place. So all of the administrative and calculating the quantitative element of their progress is all done for them. And it's uh, um, often when it comes to managing your relationship with your investors, it's a really uh, anxiety filled activity for founders because it's your most important relationships, the lifeblood of your business. You don't want to get it wrong. So we're trying to just make that as frictionless as possible. Sounds uh, fantastic. You know, so much 
easier because you you know you really want to just focus on running the business and building the team and if you're constantly pulled back into you know and often you've got very creative people they're mm-hmm. not necessarily analytical people and this is completely foreign to them so yeah. um in your experience how have you um how has well how has the platform um evolved over a period of time from what it was to what are the add-ons to it because I know that you've got a mentoring side to it as well haven't mm. you? yeah absolutely so we were originally looking at how we help businesses manage their relationships with their investors but then we, we were getting so many requests from our community saying great I've got that I now need help with this right and of course we should always be listening to our community to see how we can service them better so we realized that there was a, a bit of a gap in the market when it comes to advisors non-exec directors experts fractional CFOs, the types of individuals that early stage founders really need access to, to help them grow, to help them scale as a business, to give them lots of knowledge, where they can't afford to hire them full time, uh, as we know from for many bootstrap businesses. And what happened during the COVID pandemic, and, and I think is going to be a continuing trend, is individuals are looking at how to monetize their time in different ways. Uh, maybe they've been made redundant from work, or they're trying to look at ways of supplementing their income with monetizing their time and um, and their expertise in a different way. So we realized we could add on the the business to investor element, we could add on a really exciting vertical of, of business to advisor. So now we have a lot of knowledge transfer, we have the ability for people to upskill. And for in the same way that we're trying to democratize that access for founders, we're also trying to democratize access for individuals to get into the startup world. Lots of people who come from corporate careers, they love the ideas of startup, they want to be more involved in something exciting and, and fast paced. But again, how do you get involved? So this way, we're bringing people together on that side, too. So what is the next situation? What are you working on next? So for us, the the really next uh, key to the uh, to, to the to the puzzle is that an analogy piece of the puzzle? Maybe <laughs> next piece of the puzzle is is really international expansion. So so we have customers in about fifteen countries at the moment, but our system is only really designed for the UK. So people are using it in a bit of a makeshift way. So we're currently just iterating, optimizing, and doing a lot of localization to the product to allow us to expand into a few more markets. So hopefully we'll be in. Uh, five markets uh, this time next year. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, another area that you're renowned for, (laughs) if that's the right word, is talking about neurodiversity. And um, I don't know, you probably know, you know, only kind of one in 10 organisations that they actually consider neurodiversity in in the workplace in Mm. terms of the practices and the policies. So tell me more about you know, why this is you know, an important campaign for you and how you think it really benefits organizations. Yeah, I think it's a, a really, really um, fantastic point and something I'm super passionate about. So for context, I was diagnosed with dyslexia, severe dyslexia, seven years old, eight years old, uh, where I was basically struggling to read. Um, and, and something was was wrong, as it were, uh, and then diagnosed with severe ADHD at the age of 15. And it's really interesting because I think my journey uh, in the education system really formed a lot of the way that I see we should be applying accessibility and inclusivity within the workplace because I was uh, about to be kicked out of school at 15 years old I was on the verge of being kicked out of school had to beg to be allowed to do my GCSEs and the reason why is because 
how it looked to my teachers when you're looking at things from a neurotypical perspective is I'm absent. I don't care. I'm not bothered. You know, my head's not in the game, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then when it came to exam time, uh, I was able to do well in my exams and it was like, oh, okay, clearly there is a big difference between how it seems and actually what's going on up here. And that was a really eye-opening thing for me and, and managed to, to do well academically and get, get myself to university because the school started allowing me to work in a way that, that suited me better. Um, and it started to be much more flexible. So I credit my school massively actually with not kicking me out and saying, okay, well, look, we'll, we'll allow you to try and do this your way, which was great. Um, and I think that's something which I've always then applied into the workplace, whether that be, you know, I've done a bad job if people don't feel like they can come to work wearing whatever they want, right? If Or if they can't listen to their headphones or they want to work in a quiet area in, in the breakout space or they want to work flexibly or, you know, they want to have a day where they have no meetings. And all of these things um, really allow us to accommodate for lots of different types of diversity and the reason why connected i believe has a 96 percent staff retention rate over four years is because even if you're neurotypical having different ways of working is actually massively beneficial as well you know giving people accommodating for for as many things as possible is just a broadly positive thing regardless of, of neurodiversity you know, neuro being neurotypical um you know all, all these accommodations are going to help people thrive i, I... I think it's interesting, uh, neurodiverse, we're all diverse, you mm. know, we all, all, there is, I mean, it's really strange when we look at neurotypical, well, actually, when you break that down, it just means that you know, there's a group of people that are not typical, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really, exactly. but it's just our DNA says that we're all unique and, and different, we have different levels of um, abilities, and schools flatten all of that out mm. rather than appreciating the differences and I've looked into some really interesting schools Bali in you know various corners of the world that uh-huh. allow students to create their own course and their own plan so they make a decision about what they're interested in based on their strengths and then they develop a program around that and so much of school focuses on weaknesses and and because it irons out it tries to um, flatten diversity um, because we have one system you've got to go through the system and if you don't fit we're going to chuck you out but actually if we look at you know human nature is so divergent that it just seems this is not really fit for purpose and and then in the workplace is exactly the same there's a real challenge with companies wanting to force people back into the workplace Mm. and wanting them to fit you know uh into a square box that Mm. doesn't really exist anymore really um so there are lots of challenges within in, in employers, not only looking at what the, the world work looks like, but also having to look at from an individual basis, what is going to be more most productive. And that's quite difficult to navigate. So how have you done that? You've still got to be you know you have shareholders you've got all of these people that are on your back you've got to perform but yet everyone's doing things to different times in different ways so you know help those other employers that thought yeah but that won't really work here so Mm -hmm. how have you got it to work 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I think um, I think that's a really, really great point that people do feel, yes, it can work other places, but it won't work here. And it's interesting. I, I recently had on my podcast um, a lady called Aisha, who was the founder of the Black Employee Resource Group within Amazon. And she was she was telling me that, you know, when you start a business, not baking in diversity and inclusion from a very early stage, you know, then when the business gets much later down the line, it's so difficult to right those wrongs. Um, so I think it's the sort of thing which which businesses need to focus on as early as possible to try and make sure that they are set up that way. But then, of course, they've got to do the work to redress that where, where they haven't done it. Right. Obviously, the earlier you can solve the problem, the better. But you still need to solve the problem regardless of of what stage you're at. And I think a lot of it is to do with mentality. You know, a lot of it is to do with mentality. And ultimately, you don't know if those things are going to work for you unless you try them. And I think that's ultimately got to be the biggest test is we should be quantitative with the way that we we look at these things. And if we have the chance to, you know, create cohorts and groups where we give them flexible working or we, you know, whatever it might be. And, and it's, you know, amazing. Some of the corporates that I've spoken at, um, one of the big debates was should people be allowed to wear headphones when they work? You know, so some some corporates are still so far behind in terms of accommodating these things, it's it's quite it's quite scary at times. Um, but I, I think you just need to look at the stats. I think you need to look at the stats, and I think you need to look at the reality that if you're wanting to hire the best in Gen, Gen Z talent, they're only going to accept uh, an accommodating environment, and they have such a moral compass built into them, and they have such a desire for equality built into them that if you want to hire from that generation and not end up spending so much on recruitment fees and just you know constantly trying to you know be on that 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 hamster wheel of talent new talent coming through you're going to have to do it or you're going to get left behind and I think that's my big message which says okay, maybe if you're of a certain generation, you don't see why it's so important, but your business is not going to be able to attract the right talent in five years time. And then you're really going to suffer from it. So I think uh, it, it's only going to become increasingly important. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And it's interesting. So you're talking about stats, you know, employees surveyed um, new, new, um, neurodiversity in business and said that neurodiverse workforces are hyper-focused by 80%, think in innovatively by 75% and have more creativity by 78%. And JP Morgan oh. found that autistic employees worked 48% faster and were almost 100% more productive than non-autistic colleagues. Wow. Which is really powerful, isn't it? And, yeah. you know, like from a society point uh, point of view, we tend to view uh, divergent people. And I hate that word. I mm. really hate neurodivergent, neurodiversity yeah. I'm fine with, but neurodivergent. And I've seen this word quite a lot and it just, the hairs in the back of my yeah. neck seem to, you know, it's like divergent. It's something yeah. bad and negative. <laughs> but actually, the more we talk about the positive stats and how this can really help businesses and how it's a major advantage if you get someone's strength. So it doesn't matter about the uh, uh, the neurodiversity, but it's their strength. Yeah. What is their strength? Identifying what that is and putting mm. them in the right position. That's everybody in the right position to excel. 
the individual benefits, the company benefits. So putting them in the right position is actually not only about the, the position, but it's about the environment as well for them to excel. Who wouldn't want that? I mean, these stats are 100% more productive than non-autistic colleagues. It's so interesting. It's it's amazing stat, Janice. Thank you so much for pulling that one out. I'm de- definitely going to steal that one and, and use it again. <laughs> but, <get> it. <laughs> yeah. but I think it's really interesting. And you're right, because so my, my brother is is not severely, but moderately autistic. And, um, you know, if you were in a, a, a typical um, interview environment, which maybe didn't appreciate the social nuances of autism, you'd think maybe that's not a good cultural fit. So, you, you know, you need to have... Um, in, I don't know the right word, but, but um, qualify as possibly for interviewing diverse candidates in a different way, potentially. I'm not sure. But I think, uh, yeah, that, that's that's definitely something which I've seen hamper his ability to, to get employment, for example. Yeah, I have. I'm a partner in a, a database that's been going. It's it sales specific and it's verified mm-hmm. data. 25 years, it's had 2.3 billion, million, sorry, people that have answered these questionnaires. And Mm -hmm. I've even interviewed on the podcast people that are recruiting for sales. And it's often, you know, CVs, which are only 18% um, verified predictive, uh, predictive. And it's like it's like we're constantly using these things that are are barriers to people and the words, you know, that that they use yeah. are barriers to people. But if you have a a, a, a survey um, that or questionnaire and it's anonymous and it, you know, it doesn't go to an individual, it goes to a machine who identifies the strengths and um, benchmarks that against mm. what good looks like in the industry for this sector you know based on the 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 environments that they're going into you can almost throw anybody at that yeah you know uh, neuro uh, diversity you want to throw them at that because the thing is the database will will identify the individual strengths because we as individuals don't always know what our strengths are but if you benchmark that against what good looks like and there's a whole history that's verified and I think we need to move recruitment more into that and away from the personality um, and the biases that we we automatically have and it means then if you use this as your first filter then you've already got someone that is recommended and then the individual cannot fight against that. The biases cannot fight against that. You know, the the the, the data kind of stacks up. And I think we need to use um, this more in order to allow a wider pool of people into the workforce. Because if we're if we're relying on personality and our biases, then we're not going to go anywhere, are we? Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And I think we're at a really, really um, pivotal moment in recruit tech, for example, where I'm seeing a lot of people leveraging AI. And there's going to be big questions around how those models are trained and what data sets are they using? Because there's such a a worry that if we're training it on these 
uh, traditional models of what good looks like and what success looks like, and these become the norm, then yes, absolutely. We're going to be recruiting from the same pool of people again and again and again, and that ability to broaden it out becomes even uh, more more threatened. So I think it's, I really hope there are people who are listening to this who are working on this space uh, <laughs> who can say, yeah, you know, we are focusing on, on making sure that <clears throat> machine learning models are, are being trained on a really broad and diverse data set. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So in relation to that, I want to talk about uh, social economics in, mm-hmm. in, in business, because I know that this is another kind of like area that we, we went into a conversation a, a bit around uh, this. But I'd like to kind of like gain more of your your knowledge and experience in, in this area. So what is what is your beef about this? Hey, Ron? Um, it's an interesting one. I think obviously going to, you know, state school, going to, um, you know, going through a situation where most of the people I've seen along the way on this journey have had a very different um, background in that sense. And, and maybe, you know, a different level of, um, yeah, f- financial privilege growing up for sure. Um, and it's it's not necessarily a beef, but I think it's just important that we understand and I think the, I think things are improving from from what I'm seeing uh, in terms of more people wanting to get involved with entrepreneurialism. But there's still the same issues of funding where I, I don't know if there are stats around this, but probably the, the likelihood of you getting funding if you went to the right public school, went to the right university that flows from a public school, you know, your Oxbridge, wherever it might be, um, you, you, your likely outcomes of success are, are massively different. And I think it's um, I think it's a shame because it's you know entrepreneurialism and either in terms of founding a company or investing in a company or advising a company can be one of the biggest wealth creators there is. And having people precluded from that conversation just never does never sat well, right? It's never sat well, and I think that's why there's there's so much to be done around education, so much to be done around accessibility, and. You know, there are so many structural inequalities when it comes to even investing in startups. You know, you can go and put your whole paycheck in a fixed odds betting machine every single week. No one's going to stop you. But you need to be a sophisticated high net worth to invest in a startup. You know, and and these sorts of things which are designed to keep, you know, people out of um, certain opportunities uh, never sit well. So the more that we can do to increase education, the more that we can do to really try and lower the barriers there then the better off everyone's going to be and and ultimately you know the rising tide lifts all boats and that's what we've got to that's what we've got to strive for yeah i mean it's i I completely agree with you roy i mean it's really shocking that women get what one percent yeah one percent of the the pie investment so you know as you say if if investors look a certain way, have a certain view of the world, have come from, you know, a privileged background, they're going to invest in things mm-hmm. that they understand, which is going to be quite, quite narrow. And, you know, if there's so few investors that are women, then less women are going to get uh, investment funding and, yeah. and the same uh, and diversity in, and a, across the board. So, you know, being able to create a level playing field w- would mean that we've got in more innovation creating Activity at our fingertips because you know, it's more accessible so it's good for all isn't it so how are you addressing this so one of the things that we're really passionate about with with connected is we wanted to make it as low barrier to entry as possible so for a business to join connected it's 
starts at I think the the lowest um, entry point is like 25 pounds a month you know we wanted to make it at a level where everyone can access this um assuming you have 25 pounds a month but we you know we wanted to make sure that people were not excluded from that conversation and then of course the way that people are connected on the platform is really based around uh non-demographic um metrics and non-demographic criteria what stage are you at what customer group are you targeting what sector are you in what's your business model so you're discovering businesses discovering opportunities based on skills based on interest rather than based on education or based on you know who they are so matching people more along those lines or actually this is more of a commercial thing rather than one tinge by bias in that way that that's really something that we're passionate about so it's it's how we started day one people matching along those lines um you know you're not matching with an with a founder you're matching with a business i don't know what that founder looks like you know i don't know their name i'm matching with their business so we, we it's something which we've, we've baked in from day one and, and something we could will we'll, we'll always do fantastic fantastic i just want to pick up on another area that i remember you mentioned how your you know founder master and servant at the same time so you have two masters so you're having to sell up to investors but also sell down down not so much down but you know amongst the the team so what is your belief and mindset about sales and selling so i think um uh, so you're 100 right in terms of as a investment backed ceo you've got two organizations, you have your internal organization, which is your your team and your external organization, which is your shareholders. And, you know, for a, a company like Connected, you're talking about 80 people in the internal organization, 60 people in the external one, and then then your sandwich, your, uh, the filling in the middle of the organizational sandwich, as it were. So yeah, there, there's a lot to do. I think um, one of the things that is key is transparency. So the end of month reporting that I share, that I power through the Connected platform, of course, goes to everyone in the organization. So the narrative that goes to the entire organization, external and internal, is consistent and it stays the same throughout, which obviously makes it really easy in terms of everyone being aligned of where we are, where we're trying to get to, what's going well, what are the challenges. So I think that's a really, really important part. But then ultimately, um, for me, the cell is more around uh, a long-term outcome, right? You know, it, it's very much a, a, a sell on we need to have we'll all be inspired, all support each other that we're going to get to something really exciting down the line. So it's a very, very long sales cycle, right? It's like a, it's like a six, seven year sales cycle, um, you know, being a CEO in that sense. Um, but I think you've got to, you, the most important thing is to practice what you preach. So you've got to be there with the work ethic. You've got to be with the mindset, the positivity, um, because it's, it's ultimately a, um, a really, really long process to get from, you know, founding to, to exit, uh, but yeah, transparency and really embodying what you're trying to sell is, is so important. So what what have you learned along the way that you could share with our listeners, you know, from pitching to investors to sharing the vision amongst the team? That's the mechanism to have how to do it. But what have your kind of personal learnings that you think uh, many founders are perhaps not aware of that you could share? Yeah, 100%. My absolute biggest tip on this side is if you're a founder that can't make sales, you can't expect anyone else to. 
You can't say, oh, I've got this amazing product, but no one wants to buy it. I need a salesperson to come in. You're, you've got to be the one to build the book. Someone else can pick it up and scale the team. And you might not be a great person. You might not be a great sales manager, but if you don't have the ability to sell your product, no one else will. So if you're a founder, you need to go and speak to customers. You need to go and sell the product and make sure that it's something that they want. And don't sit in a, 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 your bubble saying, this is great. Everyone's going to love it. Once we get a sales team in, it's going to fly. If you're not able to sell it, it's not going to sell. So that's my, my top tip for founders is sell it yourself before you expect anyone else to. Do you know what, Roy? I wish I could have paid you for that because the amount of times I've said this, I'm part of an accelerator um, program and it's like, well, how how do we get a salesperson in? Uh, you don't. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, but I need someone that can sell. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> yeah, spot on. Spot on. Yeah, so um, I'm, I think I'm going to take this bit out and have it on replay and just send it to all these people <laughs> you right. know so yeah great tip great tip okay so if you on a desert island on your own what's yeah. the one thing you take with you uh my laptop easy Why? as that it's, it, my, because it's i've managed to build a life with basically no material things around me um i always say like if my flat burnt down if i had it if i had my laptop I, I, that's all that matters so i've managed to to be as minimalist as possible uh all i need is my laptop you travel light and you're getting a solar panel paneled one so you know yeah. you'll be happy on your desert exactly. island you'll still Janet, be connected thank you for on. being a guest on scale yourselves podcast thanks so much janice we'll speak soon see ya bye-bye bye you for listening to this week's episode of scale your sales podcast if you like this discussion feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the caption show on youtube and subscribe to future episodes i would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on itunes thank you